So um, it's good to see you. We are halfway through our survival guide series where we're looking at uh, how do we as Christians follow Jesus in an environment where it's very difficult for us to follow Jesus. And uh, we, we've hit our halfway point, and so I'll just kind of come right out and tell you uh, what Paul is going to do, that Paul is the author of this letter. What he's going to do at this halfway point is he's actually going to provide a recap or a summary of, of pretty much everything he has said um, up to this point. And um, as, as I was thinking about it this week, what, what it reminds me of is uh, if you can remember a, a long time ago, um, I, I'm talking before there was TiVo, DVR, Netflix, Hulu, um, all we had was the antiquated technology of a television, right? Can you remember all the way back to like seven years ago when um, all there was was the TV? And um, what you remember is that if you had a show that you were particularly um, just desperate to see, for example, for me growing up, I was a huge Seinfeld fan. If you had a show like that, um, you didn't really have second chances to catch that show, right? I mean, you couldn't watch it on the internet later. You couldn't hit the pause button. You couldn't DVR it. Like, you had to, on Thursday night at 9 o'clock on the East Coast, be in front of the TV to watch Seinfeld if you were going to watch Seinfeld at all and not have it completely spoiled for you the exact next day. And so for, for those of you who kind of can think that far back in history, I feel like I'm so old, like a grandpa telling stories. You know, it's just amazing how quickly technology progresses. But all the way back in my day, um, if you can remember all the way back then, you, you remember you would do anything you could possibly do in order to basically be in front of the TV, right? So if that meant lying to your friends about, you know, oh, I'm not feeling that well, I can't go out with you guys so that you could be in front of the TV at 9 o'clock on a Thursday, you would lie to your friends. If that meant you going around your house and like a crazy person being like, shh, it's starting, shh, it's starting, shh, it's starting. So you get your siblings or your parents to finally be quiet so that, you know, you don't miss anything of the show beginning, you would do that as well. And, you know, hopefully uh, maybe you had this experience as well. Now, um, if you have, what you remember, if you can think all the way back then, is that the worst time, um, the absolute worst, was when you acted like a complete, rude, crazy person. You finally got in front of your TV, and um, what you began to see, what's called a clip show. Does anyone remember what a clip show is? A clip show is a new episode that's a thinly veiled excuse of just really kind of repeating old episodes. So if you watch Seinfeld like I did, you know, two minutes in, Kramer and Jerry are having a conversation. They're like, this reminds me back when, and then it goes, you know, it gets kind of murky, and then all of a sudden it flashes back to old episodes where they show clip after clip after clip after clip, and you're like, so let me get this straight. I acted like a crazy person to get tricked into watching old episodes, Right? I don't know if you, I mean, that was just the absolute worst. You got tricked into watching this recap, tricked into watching this summary, and it was the absolute worst because you had, you know, acted completely irrationally to see something you've already seen. And so um, I was thinking about that this week because that's kind of what we're offering tonight is a clip show, a recap, a summary. The, the very thing I kind of led with telling you is not very exciting. And so I was just trying to kind of honestly process this this week. And um, what struck me is that while on one hand... Um, Recaps are somewhat lame. Um, on the other hand, they're tremendously helpful uh, because if you really want to get the fullness of a story, you have to understand where we've been if you want to know where we're going, right? You have to understand where we've been if you want to understand where we're going. So if you love Seinfeld, it was helpful to see a clip show, a recap, a summary, because you know maybe you would see, okay, it's funny every single time Elaine tries to dance because she's a terrible dancer, um, so that when the laugh track is cued in all the future episodes, when she starts to dance again, that makes sense for you. Or if, you know, let's take it into the 20th, 21st century, I believe. Um, you know, if you were a Lost fan, I, I was a huge Lost fan, um, 
that's not a story you just jump right into the middle of, right? So, um, you know, it's helpful maybe to have the five-minute recap at the very beginning of the, of the uh, episode to say, you know, previously on Lost, because if you had dropped right into the middle of a story, you know, where you've got an island that's moving around, you've got parallel universes, you, I mean, you've got all this nonsense going on. Sorry, spoiler alert for those of you who are planning to watch that on Netflix still. Um, I mean, you don't just drop into the middle of a story like that, and you're like, yeah, this makes complete sense. I can just jump right in, and yeah, I'm, I'm following with the story. And so it helps. If we really want to understand a story, we have to understand where we've been if we're going to understand where we're going. And the same applies to the story of Christianity as well. Now, my observation is that even in a city like Denver, and Denver, uh, statistically speaking, this isn't just my opinion, but statistically speaking, we are one of the least church cities in the entire United States. That even in a city like ours, people are naturally enticed by the story of Christianity. People are enticed by, you know, the opportunity to, you know, be exposed to grace and truth and love. That, that is unbelievably enticing. It's enticing probably to many of you here tonight. You maybe wouldn't even identify yourself as a Christian, but maybe you're here because, you, you know, you're trying to figure out how to do marriage differently. You're trying to believe, you know, that maybe God has something to do with you parenting differently and you not, you know, repeating the same mistakes that your parents made or you made as you were growing up. Or maybe God could possibly uh, make it happen where what happened to you in your past and has defined you up to this point uh, will not determine your future and where you're headed. And so all of us in this room, kind of no matter how we identify ourselves spiritually, are unbelievably enticed by what the story of Christianity can do in our lives. But here's my observation is while we are all enticed by that, the vast majority of us want to jump right into the middle of the story as well. And a lot of times what happens is people come into the church in the midst of a crisis. They come back to church in the midst of a crisis. And all they want to do is figure out, what do I need to do? What do I need to do? What do I need to stop doing? What do I need to start? How can I fix this? How can I make this better? Tell me what it is that I need to do. And here's, here's what Paul is going to challenge you with before we go any further. Is look, on one hand, you should have hope. God can redeem and do that work in your life. And you're going to see that in the second half of this letter. The second half of this letter is all about God's grace in the most tangible and practical areas of your life. Whether it's your sex life, your family life, your parenting life, your marriage life, the words you use, the substances you explore. It touches all of that. But what Paul is going to say is before I tell you what to do, it's imperative for you to first be reminded of what God has done for you. And for many of you, you think of Christianity, especially for those of you who are exploring it as nothing other than a list of do's and don'ts, and you're kind of ready, you know, finally talk to the pastor and figure out what do I need to stop doing, what do I need to start doing. Christianity, believing Christianity, starting Christianity, growing in Christianity is remarkably simple. And what Paul is going to remind you of is that simplicity, that it begins, the first step is celebrating and meditating on what Jesus has first done for us before we kind of figure out where it is we need to go. And so that's what we're going to get tonight. We are going to get a recap. We are going to get a summary. And what we're going to get is where we've been and where we're going, right? Because we have to understand where we've been if we're going to understand where it is that we're going. Now, we'll start with where we've been. I want you to look with me. Look with me at verse 14 to see what Paul writes. He says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. Now, I'll start with the second part of that, and then uh, we'll talk about the first. So when he says, I bow my knees before the Father, what he's saying is, I am praying for you. And it's not just that I am praying for you, but I am praying 
passionately for you. In this culture, men were supposed to be stoic, emotionless, dignified. And so if you prayed, you prayed standing up. You prayed composed. You did not show your emotions. When he says, I am praying on my knees for you, he's saying, I am praying aggressively, passionately, against even the cultural expectations laid upon me so that God will do this work in your life. And he says, what, let's look at the first part then. He says, it's for this reason I pray this way. It's for this reason. And when he's saying for this reason, it is a reference back to everything that he has said preceding this. For the three chapters leading up to this, he's saying it's for this reason I am praying for God to do a work in your life. And let me just recap what he said up to this point. In just three chapters, what he said, if you're a follower of Jesus or interested in becoming a follower of Jesus, is that God has has done uh, almost 30 actions in your life. And I'm just going to read them, okay? This is just the recap. This is the summary. Here's what he said. He said that God has changed your identity. He has blessed you. He chose you before the foundations of the earth. He predestined you for adoption. He redeemed you through the blood of Christ. He forgave you. He's made you known the mystery of his will. He's given you an inheritance. He's secured your salvation. He's given you the Holy Spirit. He's given you wisdom. He's given you power. He's loved you. He's been merciful towards you. He's brought you from death to life. He's seated you with him in heaven. He saved you by grace. He's given you a purpose. He brought you near even though you were far off. He's given you peace. He's created a new race. He's created unity between cultures. He's leveled cultures. He's preached peace. He's made, a citizen, made you a citizen of his kingdom. He's revealed truth. He's given you a community. He's given you an unshakable hope in him. He has done this in your life, laboring for your joy since the foundations of the earth. And what Paul is praying, look at what he's saying, is that in light of all this, what I am praying, what I'm on my knees for, look at verse 18, is that you, you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints. And when Paul says saints, if you remember in the book of Ephesus, he uses it over and over again. And if you're, you know, maybe Catholic and that's your background, uh, you may think of some dead guy who, who fed orphans across the globe. When the Bible talks about a saint, he talks about you if you're a follower of Jesus. He says you, that you would have the strength to comprehend what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And what he's saying there in a single sentence is that he is praying that the magnitude, the greatness, the weightiness of what God's love is for you would be something that you could finally come to comprehend. In fact, one of my favorite lines of this entire passage is what he says there, what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. I was reading a scholar, he said that, that what Paul is getting at here is the four-dimensional love of God. He's trying to help us understand its weightiness, its magnitude, its greatness, so that when we finally come to comprehend its size, It provides for us a safety and security in our souls and in our hearts. And here's the deal, is is that is really not that foreign of a concept. Even when we just, let's just think very uh, practical, because here's what we know, kind of no matter what your spiritual beliefs are, is that the size of an object has a direct impact on the safety or security we feel. Does that make sense? The size of an object has a direct impact on the safety and security we feel. So, for for example, um, for me, I grew up on the East Coast, and the one thing, the only thing the East Coast has on Colorado is you're not landlocked, 
right? You can, you can actually go out and go on the water and go to the ocean. And uh, my family growing up had a boat. And I remember a few years ago, um, my family and I were at a, actually a reunion with our, with our entire extended family. And my dad um, suggested bringing our entire family out on our boat. And so um, on our boat is me, uh, my wife, Megan, Eric, my brother, my parents, grandparents, um, some cousins, some aunts and uncles, and at this point, if you're tracking with me, what you're thinking in the back of your head is like, wow, like they must have been really wealthy. Did they have a yacht? No, we did not have a yacht. You were thinking incorrectly if that's the way you're thinking. We had a small little kind of power boat that probably safely, or safely sat somewhere between five to six people. So we cram everybody onto this thing because my dad thinks it'll be a neat experience. And, you know, you just do that. Like when your dad says this will be a neat experience, you just say, okay, we're going to do it. And, um, you know, you get out into the middle of the lake. And what, of course, happens when you get out into the middle of the lake when you have way too many people? Well, of course, an East Coast storm came out of nowhere and just starts pounding down upon us. I mean, just out of nowhere. So, so So it's a comical scene if you weren't there where you've got, you know, the rain pounding down, lightning striking, the boat rocking back and forth, um, not enough room for anyone, and, and there you are, you know, a little bit terrified, like, am I going to get struck by lightning? Am I going to knock grandma off the side of the boat? Um, how exactly is this going to unfold? Now, in the midst of the chaos, my dad looks at me, looks me straight in the eyes, and he says, Brian, I need you to drop the anchor. And in that moment, he might as well have been saying, son, it's time for you to become a man. You know, I was just like, okay, let's do it, okay. And so in my mind, at the back of my mind, I'm thinking to myself, you know, I have these kind of delusions of grandeur that it's something like the perfect storm where, you know, as I'm walking up to the front of the boat, which, you know, keep in mind, it's still three, you know, it's three steps to the front of the boat. So in these three steps, I'm thinking to myself, you know, I'm going to get to the front of the boat and there's just going to be this monstrosity of an anchor and I, like a beast, am going to deadlift it off the ground and then hurl it into the ocean and it will hit the bottom and this rocking boat will be steadied and my wife will, you know, plant this kiss on me and I will be celebrated as as a hero, and um, I get to the front, and I reach down into uh, this compartment where the, uh, the anchor was, and I'm preparing to rip this thing up, and um, I almost throw myself off the side of the boat because it's so light. <laughs> you know, like I'm kind of preparing myself that like I'm going to deadlift a 100-pound anchor, and I'm like, whoa, you know, and it almost throws me off because this thing is itty-bitty. It is like this big, and I'm just kind of, you know, it's almost like a keychain I'm holding in my hands. And I'm looking at it, thinking to myself, um, this does not make me feel any better about our chances of survival. And the reason, why is this? Because we all recognize that the size of an object, its weightiness, its mass, has a direct impact as to whether or not we feel safety and security in our souls. And what Paul is praying for here, when he talks about you comprehending what is the height and the, or the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, is that you would recognize the, 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 the supreme magnitude of what God's love is for you. In fact, elsewhere in the New Testament, the love of God through Jesus, the gospel is referred to as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. And as Paul is preparing to talk about all sorts of kind of practical aspects, that's what the second half of this letter is all about. It's about some of the most practical, most difficult, most countercultural aspects of your life. What he is saying is it's the gospel of Jesus Christ and the love expressed through it 
that is able to steady you in the midst of trying to live counterculturally in a city where it's very hard to live that way. And I think before we go any further, here's what I think we just have to do is, is that you and I, we have to ask ourselves, and in light of this challenge and what, what Paul is trying to help us, the four-dimensional love of God, is just to ask yourself, and I try to ask myself this week, is, is that do you really comprehend the size of God's love for you? Do you understand how much God really loves you? And here's what I know. I know that once we begin to understand this, it trickles down to the most practical areas of our lives. I know that for many of us, we live entire lives pursuing acceptance, don't we? We we live entire lives hoping that somebody, anybody, even people we don't like very much, will look at us and say, well done, you did great, I love you, I accept you. We will blow budgets to be accepted. We will, we will work jobs and ungodly hours at jobs in order to be accepted. Uh, we will uh, take up hobbies we don't even like in order to be accepted. And don't you see the size of God's love proclaims to you that the opinion of the one person in the universe that really matters has seen you for who you really are and has declared, I accept you, I love you, you are mine. And because we are accepted by him, we can live lives not in reaction and hoping that, you know, maybe the guy who probably doesn't really even care about us that much that deeply, where we don't live entire lives in response to trying to earn the favor of people like that. For others of us, we live entire lives out of fear, right? I mean, we've had maybe negative experiences in our past, and we live entire lives uh, hoping that they will never be manifested again. If, if you know, maybe you, you just kind of natural responses you think about as you get into difficult situations, as you mind map out exactly how the worst case scenario is going to unfold in your life, and you're always you're, you you can't even be really all in anywhere because you're always waiting for that person to hurt you again, for you you know to get in a relationship and it to be broken again, for that person to lie to you again, you live an entire life waiting for the worst case scenario to unfold. And it's not a full life because of it. And don't you see what the size of God's love proclaims to you through the gospel is that God labors before the foundations of the earth for the best case scenario when we didn't earn it or even want it. I mean, he has labored for us, labored for our joy, fought for us, and he will protect us now that we are his as a shepherd protects his sheep. You see that many of you, you live entire lives scared of commitment. For some of you, I just said the word commitment, and you shuddered like a little bit in your chair. And many of you, I have conversations with you over coffee, and we, we joke about how the one thing you're committed to is not being committed to anything. And you have, one, you have one foot out everywhere, right? I mean, you just don't go all in anywhere. You have one foot out the door, and as soon as it becomes inconvenient for you to really be all in anywhere, whether it's a relationship, whether it's a marriage, whether it's a church, whether it's a city, you are gone. And you're not living a full life either. And don't you see the magnitude, the size of God's love proclaims to you that there is a God who was committed to you even when it wasn't convenient for him. I mean, he was committed to you even when it cost him the life of his own son. And because he went all in with you, you can go all in somewhere. And you can be a deeply committed individual in a church and in a city and with a family and to a spouse and to a relationship and to a job. And not always be waiting for the next best thing. And the magnitude, the size of God's love becomes a sure and steady anchor for our souls. 
and enables us and empowers us to live a full life and to live counterculturally, as Paul's about to call us, to live counterculturally. Now, he's, he's not just going to get into that next week in chapter 4, but he's actually going to give us a glimpse into what this is supposed to look like as well. He's going to kind of give us a glimpse, a, you know, almost kind of like a, a next time in Ephesians kind of glimpse into where we're going. <laughs> um, so let's look at that. Look at verse 20. He's going to lay out just kind of a summary of where we're going. Um, look at verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. And I love this line. Our church was founded, it was built on this line that God is the one who is able to do abundantly more than we could ever ask or imagine, according to the power at work within us. So what he's saying now is, that, is the same power that God has manifested through the gospel, the life, death, resurrection of Jesus, is at work in us. The same power that rose Jesus from the grave is at work within us. It's unleashed in our lives as well. That in response to this, here's what he's going to give us. He's going to give you a threefold vision of what your life should look like. A threefold vision of what your life should look like. And, and look at what he says in the following verses, starting in, in, uh, or in verse 21. He first says this. He says, I worship rightly. Look at verse 21. Verse 21, he says to him, he's talking about God here, to God be glory. Now, when you hear something like that, we sing that way, we talk about God receiving glory, we may pray that way, but it's just one of those things that almost nobody knows what it means, right? We just kind of say it, and we don't really know exactly what it means. And all Paul is talking about here is how God receives the recognition for who he is, that God receives glory, that he's the one person in the universe that deserves the recognition of glory. He is the one person in the universe who deserves our worship, our, our ultimate affection and devotion. Now, this, what he's challenging you to here, becomes a lot more practical when you understand that all of us, we all worship something or somebody. Okay, we all worship something or somebody. In fact, I've heard it put, we weren't created to worship, we were created worshiping. And I saw this illustrated beautifully. I was watching, um, I have an addiction to uh, documentaries on Netflix, and so I was watching this documentary on the life of Johnny Carson, the guy who uh, had the Tonight Show before Jay Leno. And um, if you've ever watched kind of those late night shows, you know it's always the same. So there's a curtain. I feel like we should start doing this. Um, there's a curtain, and then um, it opens, and then the guy comes out, and the crowd goes crazy, right? They go, yay, and stand up and go absolutely crazy. I feel like that would be like a real confidence booster for me if we could do that on a regular basis. So he comes out, and he goes crazy. And, you know, if, if, if we did that, right, like if, if we had a curtain, and I came out from behind it, and you guys were going crazy, what would you expect me to do in response? You would expect me in response to be like, no, 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 you know, sit down. No, no, you, you, you're great. You're fantastic. And um, you know what Johnny Carson does? He uh, actually, he, he comes from behind the curtain. He, he walks out, and the uh, crowd is going absolutely crazy. And the first thing he says is, come on, this is America. You have the right to worship. Get loud. And the people in response are like, yeah. you know, they just start going absolutely ballistic in response. And even him, even Johnny Carson recognized that what he was experiencing in that moment was something far weightier than just applause. He was receiving that audience's worship. We all worship something or somebody. Look at the dad who's emotionally distant from his family but goes absolutely ballistic at the sporting event of his favorite team. 
Look at how some of us will literally uh, work to the point of death, right? We will almost kill ourselves. We'll have no boundaries for the sake of advancing in a career. For many of us, we will spend money that we don't have. We will blow the budget. We won't even think twice because there's particular areas of our lives. Maybe it's going to see a band. Maybe it's something for our family. Maybe it's a particular article of clothing. Maybe it's for an experience. Maybe it's for safety. Maybe it's for security. We just spend money we don't have without thinking twice because what? Because there's something in our heart. I need this if I'm going to survive. All of us, we all worship something or somebody. We have ultimate devotion to which we give glory. And what Paul is trying to do is realign our hearts so that glory is not given to a sporting team or a band, but to the creator and sustainer of the universe. Because he alone is the one who deserves that level of devotion. He alone is the one that we architect our entire lives around. He alone is the one we strategize our budgets to be generous to. He alone is the foundation and the director of our lives. And what he's preparing you for is this next half of this letter where he's going to get tremendously practical. But here's the deal. When he's talking about sex and family and kids and what substances you use and don't use, here's his ultimate concern. It's not that you just do right things, but you worship the right person. Because when you are worshiping correctly, you will do the right things. And that's what he's after here. So to him be glory. Second, I not just worship rightly, I commit deeply in the church and in Christ Jesus. So he says that this glory is meant to be manifested. The worship of God is meant to be manifested in the church and in Christ Jesus. And again, we are the most individualistic culture that has ever walked the earth. We are the culture that we say, you know, I like Jesus, but I don't like the church. And we're like, you should write a book about that. That's fantastic. And what Paul is saying here is that's not just an, op- that's just not an option for you. Okay, that, just the plain reading of the New Testament says that's not an option for you. Not only does God have a plan for your life to make known his glory, but that plan has to take place in a specific institution, organization, organism called the church. And so here's where I just want to be super practical. I want to challenge some of you here who, who are not uh, members here of the summit yet. I just want to challenge you to, to think about joining the church. I want to challenge you to think about joining the church. Now, um, let me take a step back because um, a lot of times, especially here in Denver, people are pretty surprised we ask for so much commitment um, here at the church. And it's like, man, like you asked me to be here and to serve and to be committed and to be generous and to help out. And that's like a lot of commitment. And and here's the deal is that um, the reason, the reason we ask for so much commitment is because we just believe the mission is that important. That's why. We, we just believe that, you know, the glory of God is at stake. That's what Paul is saying here. The church exists to manifest the glory of God. And if we were just kind of some nonprofit that did, you know, good stuff in the community, and every once in a while you came here, and I tried to give you an inspirational talk in order for you to live a better life, I mean, you wouldn't need to be committed to that whatsoever, and it'd be unreasonable for me to ask of that. But when the glory of God is the mission, then commitment is absolutely necessary. And what I want for you is to be committed. Not, maybe it's not even here, but committed somewhere, to be all in somewhere. And again, I know that for, for many of you, commitment is a four-letter word that makes you tremendously uncomfortable. And what about the opportunities that could come up later on? And I would just say, let the fact that God was fully committed to you produce in you a life of commitment. Let the fact that God was all in for you, even the fact that it cost him his own life, 
mean that you give your whole life in response to him. So we want to be committed as well. And he's going to talk a lot about that, what life looks like, um, not just as a Christian, but as a Christian in the life of the church. Now, third and finally, and um, my favorite, my favorite of what Paul says here is um, I not only worship rightly, I not only commit deeply, but I think generationally. He closes out like this, throughout all generations, forever and ever, amen. Now, for most of us, we think typically daily or weekly, but not really uh, generationally. You know, we think, um, you know, t- tomorrow, many of you are going to go to work, you're going to start your work week, and all you're going to be thinking is, how can I survive this day? How can I survive this week? But, but, what Paul's challenging us to do is to think in terms of generations. What he's challenging us to do is to think years down the road, to think long, to think about what sort of legacy it is that you and I are going to leave. Now, we, we've talked a lot about this as a church, but here's the interesting thing about legacies. The interesting thing about multi-generational legacies is not uh, if, but what kind. Not if, but what kind. So the question is not, Am I going to leave a legacy or not? The question is, what kind of multi-generational legacy will you leave in your wake? And, and all you have to do is think about your own family to recognize the truthfulness. For many of you, whether it's good or bad, you can look back, you can look backwards, generations, right? You can look backwards generations, and you can see how your grandparents and parents shaped who you are today. Maybe it's good. Maybe it's the career that you work is because of what your grandfather did and what your, grand, uh, or what your dad did. Um, maybe it's bad. Maybe you notice a pattern. It's like, okay, my grandmother was attracted to really bad men. Uh, my mom was attracted to really bad men. And it's weird. I'm attracted to really bad men as well. Or maybe it's an addiction. My grandfather struggled with this addiction. My dad struggled with this addiction. And it's weird. I struggle with this exact same addiction as well. So it's not hard to see. Here's the key question, though. Do you not only recognize that, do you do more than Resent that? Do you, do you see that you're going to do that? You are going to leave some sort of multi-generational legacy in your wake. The question, the only question you need to ask yourself is what kind? And I think the question that Paul's asking you here is what kind of legacy could you leave if you really did receive and recognize the magnitude of this love that's been given to you and you would live a life completely all in in response to that love? In fact, I try to think about that. Um, I, I try never to ask you a question that I haven't first asked myself. And so um, I just sat in a coffee shop on 18th Street this week. And uh, before I destroy my iPad here. Okay. And um, I just sat, I sat with a three-by-five card, and I just, I just dreamed about, like, what would this look like in my life? What, what would it look like if I thought long and I really gave myself all in for just God's mission and for this church. And um, I came up with a, a couple personal ones. Um, I, I looked at my life 40 years down the road, and I said, I, I hope um, that the legacy I've left is that for the people that know me the best, I'm talking about my friends, my family, you as my church, um, that they would say, uh, that's a man that loved one woman really well. Because it's really easy to like, not love one woman well, right? I mean, you, you, it's easy to get out of a marriage. It's easy to get tired or resentful of a marriage. It's easy to look at, flirt with other women. And I don't want that to be the story I've told. I want to be the type of man that 40 years from now, the people who know me best to say, that's a man that loved Megan really, really well. I thought about my children. Um, you know, we're in the process of adopting, so we don't even have children in our home yet. But I've, I've I started thinking that 40 years from now, I hope that what people can say of me is that I raise my children with a singular pursuit. 
with a singular challenge to pursue the glory of God in their lives. And I know it's going to be hard for me because I'm very type A. I'm a little bit controlling. I like to micromanage a little bit. And so I would love um, for them to be winners, right? I I love sports and I would love for them to kill it out on the football field. Um, I would love for them to make a ton of money and live the American dream and be very safe and very secure. I would love for them to be raise and grow up and even raise my grandkids like in this neighborhood that would be absolutely incredible to you know be very close to my children and grandchildren but here's the deal is I already have a vision for my life that 40 years from now I hope that what my kids can say is you push us to do one thing with excellence to follow Jesus no matter the cost even if it meant we weren't safe even if it meant we weren't prosperous even if it meant we didn't grow up right by you that's what I want people to say about me for my family for our church I thought about 2051, and uh, 2051, I'll have pastored this church for 40 years, and so that's kind of the goal. Um, you know, I've told you many times that um, my, my vision here is this isn't a stepping stone on, into something else. This is the dream. This is kind of the end pursuit uh, for me and my wife and my family, and so I figure 40 years, um, I'll have said everything that I could possibly say. Um, the time will be for me to hand the baton to somebody else. And uh, I, I pray that that happens. I mean, a, a man who is more gifted, talented, accomplished, loves Jesus more than I do. I mean, even, um, you know, the family gathering, for those of you that were there uh, last Thursday, we told you that we're actually under contract to buy this property, um, which is unbelievably exciting. And so, um, yeah, in 30 days, if everything goes well, we'll close uh, to buy this warehouse and the brick building in front. And, um, and so, I, had, I mean, even as I was walking here to tell you guys that Summit family uh, on Thursday, I was thinking to myself, okay, I'm walking from a house I own uh, a mile away to a building we own as a church. Um, and uh, what I hope is in 2051, um, I get to do that walk a final time with my kids and my grandkids, and I preach a final sermon, and then I don't know what I'll do then, but, you know, maybe I'll just be a good member and I'll tithe and I'll... I don't know, finally go to the Broncos games on Sundays or something like that. <laughs> I, I thought about, for us as a church, how uh, I, I really pray um, that we have a global impact. I, I, I just thought about that, that, that for us as a church in 40 years, I mean, what would it look like? You know, we talked about already multiplying services at our family gathering. What if we didn't just multiply services or, or campuses or churches maybe here in Denver or churches in the West? But what if we, we had a vision like the Great Commission calls us to for the ends of the earth? And what if the Summit Church had fingerprints on churches that are ministering, uh, yeah, to the, all over the globe? And I think it can happen. I think for many of you in our room, some, in this room, we have missionaries that will raise your kids on the mission field overseas. And right now you're thinking to yourself, I'm crazy. Right now you may not even be a Christian yet, but God will do that. He's the God who can do abundantly more than you could ever ask or imagine. And it's even for your joy and for your happiness. And so that's the question. I try to examine this in my own life. The question I would just ask you is what would this look like in your life? What, what does it look like in your life if you really go all in with this mission? What, what would happen generations from now? Let me ask you this too. What would happen generations from now if you don't? And what story is it that you want to tell with your life? And I love this challenge from Paul to not just worship well or to commit to the church but to do that for generations and to write a different story with our lives and to leave a legacy in our wake where our children and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren are raised to say that's the type of man that's the type of woman that said follow me as i follow jesus here's what i want to do as we close paul this whole section here is a prayer that's all it is it's just a prayer 
And so what I want to pray in response is just this prayer over your life and over our church. I won't add anything to it beyond the words inspired by the Holy Spirit. So pray with me and then we'll be and we'll sing in response. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.